Welcome to the show, Jason Gaddis. Thank you. Psyched to be here. What's happening, brother? How are you? I am well today. Yeah. Uh, got the workout in, hung out with the kids, carved pumpkins. I'm good. There you go. We just had a, a little back and forth about being a Halloween person or not. I'll be going as a space cowboy. Are you at least going trick-or-treating? Well, how old are your kids? Uh, 14 and 12. The 14-year-old is not. He's going to hang with some friends. The 12-year-old uh, is definitely going. 12, you're cresting into TPing houses territory versus trick-or-treating, right? <laughs> it's getting there. Exactly. <laughs> Just getting there. Beautiful, man. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show today. Um, as someone who spent a lot of my life focusing on communication, building healthy relationships, I think you're truly one of the, the best in the world doing it right now. And so I'm curious, for you who's dedicated so much of your life to this, what was the moment that it became clear to you that you wanted to pursue this as your craft, as a career? Like, when did that happen? What was going on? Hmm. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, there's there's kind of two moments. It's sort of like the, the moment we step foot on the path and we realize that we're the problem, and <laughs> which was me at age 29 having a lot of failed relationships. I wanted to figure myself out and then so there was that kind of like, aha, and oh my God, I want to help people with what I'm learning. Um, but I think that uh, there wasn't, um, there wasn't a moment, but after being a couples psychotherapist for a number of years where I was just in the trenches with couples day in and day out, I started to see, well, and mental health centers, I, st I just kept seeing the relationship was like the root of everybody's problems. Um, traumas, mental health issues. And I was like, I'm going to go all in on this. Um, you know, with enough kind of feedback from life, I was like, this is a big problem. And I, I want to solve this problem. I want to heal this divide. And what do you now know about relationships that you wish you knew when you were just starting out all the way back then? Boy, um, you know, we've had so many advances, I think since then, like there wasn't one polyvagal theory wasn't a thing. The nervous system was barely talked about. Neuroscience wasn't, wasn't really a thing. The brain, um, at least where I went to graduate school. And in fact, I didn't even have a class on relationships in my three-year master's degree in psychology, which is interesting. Yeah, um, totally. So I, I feel like we've learned a lot and trauma, you know, like everybody's kind of semi-trauma informed these days. And we know that the the impact of childhood trauma, especially the ACEs scores, et cetera, on our longevity as well as our mental health later in life. Um, it would have been really cool to know all that stuff, you know, just like have even more data points to um, reinforce what I was doing and what I was interested in. But, you know, my heart was in the game. I didn't, I guess I didn't need all the evidence, but it's just pretty cool the, the information we have and the research now. Beautiful, man. And when would you say your work really started to focus on this uh, subject of conflict? You know, that's interesting. I, I'd say it was like sprinkled in for the longest time um, from when my days in my 20s of working with uh, at-risk youth in wilderness therapy programs. I, I clearly saw that I was like, 
the question I kept asking myself is there's, is there really no way to like get to a good place that's like proven and effective? And then I eventually got into men's work later in my thirties. And I remember leading a men's training and this guy came up to me and he was like, there was a conflict in our group and the guy pulled out this big staff and he was like, you know, a big stick. And he was like, you know, had the other guys hold on to it. And I, I kind of backed off and let him facilitate for a minute. He had some experience and it was a mankind project, um, sort of process apparently, which I really loved the mankind project. Um, and it was, uh, I was like, this isn't reality. This isn't like, if you're in a conflict at home, you're not going to grab a staff and like do this very <laughs> simple process of like owning your projection and saying a need and you're not going to do that in the workplace. So I was just like continually having experiences like that, where I was frustrated that there was no effective way. And then of course I was having conflicts in my life and I was yeah. like flailing, trying to get to the bottom of resolving them. Um, and just the combination of all those things in my marriage and wanting to model good, you know, healthy repair with my kids. There's just a, a lot of things. And I, um, the book was a kind of an easy one. I, I feel like there's some good books out there like nonviolent communication, but I didn't see one on like really focusing on repair and, and the process of conflict from a, um, from my view, you know, we all have our unique spin on it. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to put my dent in the conversation. Beautiful, man. And, and you definitely did. And one of the, my little rituals before I do a podcast is I just get to sit down and I do a little morning meditation. And I just say, what are, what are all the questions that I want to know? from this person. And the first one surprised me. And it was just, what is conflict? And it's because I have an understanding of it. I have tools to respond to it, but I didn't have an instinctive like definition of what is conflict. Yeah. So if you were just to start there, what is conflict? Yeah. And I'm curious what you came up with. Um, I define it as a, a rupture, um, a disconnection, or an unresolved kind of disagreement between two people. And what are, so it's a rupture, a disagreement between two people. And what are the most typical scenarios where we get in conflict? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the big ones is, uh, too much distance. Um, this happens really frequently in partnerships where someone is more of the avoidant or withdrawer. Uh, people, that's a huge issue for a lot of couples, for example. Um, another one is too close, too, too much closeness, right? Like you're in my grill, you're in my space. And that creates, that activates the nervous system for those of us that have a sensitivity there. Um, and then there's, you know, there's all those superficial things like talking about politics, um, war, uh, which in some ways is not superficial at all. Uh, but it's a thing we can disagree about online and get in a big fight about it. Um, yeah. And so many more, um, tone of voice, you know, the look on your face, the, it's amazing how sensitive, like I had no idea when I first started working on myself that I was as sensitive as I am. <laughs> You know, and now I'm like, holy shit, man, just a certain facial expression on my wife's face is like, can activate my system. Um, I think we're, a lot of us are like that. Yeah. So you've got a disagreement and then you've got either 
too much distance, too much closeness. And then if you were talking to someone who's in conflict right now, like what is, if you were just to take them through the steps, like what are the steps to responding to conflict consciously? What would you advise someone to do in that spot? Yeah. I mean, there's, we have to decide, are we going to speak first or are we going to listen first? And there's the conflict itself, which is very often it's hard to do the conflict itself differently. Like if we had a uh, GoPro on our foreheads in our fights at home or at work, we would see how fast and reactive we are, uh, either shutting down or blaming or whatever we do. That's that's really hard to change our sort of knee-jerk reactions. So I I put a lot of attention on the moment after that goes bad, what do we do? And so starting there, we, one of us has to either speak or listen first, who's going to do it and what are we going to do? And there's, you know, different steps, but they're very similar. If I'm going to talk first, I'm going to not lead with any you language, you always, you never, um, blame, et cetera. I'm going to lead with personal responsibility. I just want to take responsibility that I was a jerk. I raised my voice. I did the thing that upsets you. If we're going to speak, we're going to do that kind of flavor. Uh, If we're going to listen, we're going to first just say, look, I want to understand what happened for you and I'm I'm just going to listen. But we're not going to listen quietly like a good boy or a good girl in school where we're just quiet. We're going to be very engaged in our listening. And I have an acronym I call LUFU, L-U-F-U. stands for listen until the other person feels understood. And there's many steps, but the the three basic ones are I'm going to... um, validate your, I'm going to reflect back kind of the essence of what you got. Um, I'm going to make sure that we're on the same page that as I keep, you know, reflecting back what your complaint is or your hurt is, I'm going to validate your feelings. So I'm going to listen for feeling statements like I'm hurt or I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I'm going to empathize. I'm going to do my best to empathize. And then I'm going to, then I'm going to own what I did or didn't do that upset you. Um, and I'm going to do that until your nervous system starts settling down. And then, yeah, I'd like a turn. So I'd love to share what happened for me. But so speaking or listening, it's like someone has to just choose. What are you going to do? So you got speaking or listening. And what you laid out was a, a fairly clear process, which as through my experience as a coach, and I imagine yours, like it oftentimes tends to not be a, a linear process. Exactly. And so what is the primary resistance or what gets in the way? People have the information a lot of times, especially they're working with a coach or a therapist, but what would you say are the most important things to acknowledge that get in the way of doing those things? Our trauma history, um, our projections, our, um, our need to be right or defend ourselves. Um, which sometimes comes from shame. So unprocessed, unacknowledged shame. Um, those are the, those are some of the big ones that are going to thwart my attempts to do this right or do this well. And so how would you say someone can address that? It's like, I immediately dive into like very masculine approach, like solution conflict, what do we do here? And then we're digging into some of the deeper stuff that's here. So what would you say for someone who let's go even further back, which is, how would you contextualize conflict for someone who, whether showing up in the workplace as a leader, as a manager, they have high stakes relationships they need to take care of. They just want to be more relationally connected in their lives and their community. Like, how would you help them to contextualize 
the value of conflict and developing a conscious response to it? How should they think about it? Yeah. Well, I, I liked what you said, where we, we start with a contextual conversation. Um, like the company culture is, Hey, we're not afraid of conflict here. Like we, we, we lean in and I always like to frame conflict as two things, conflict repair. So I, I try to frame it as we're going to welcome conflict repair here. And people are like, well, repair, what is that? And it sort of goes in conjunction with conflict as it's just a term conflict repair. We're going to do that here. And then I explain that to people for what that you know, means. And are we all willing to step into that? And same in a relationship. I, I set a contextual conversation and say, look, our relationship is probably going to have some snags based on things I've read and in my own life. I, it seems like there's no way around getting upset with each other at times. So what's our plan when challenge and conflict arise? Can we be very committed, 100% committed to the repair process after we make a mess? Are you in with me? So we we get some agreements online. We set some context that it's welcome, and to help you know we invite people like our our kids for example in our family we we sort of say look there's always an opportunity with any challenge with another person and the opportunity is to learn about myself learn about other people learn about my sort of ways my reactivity um, and also learn to resolve and to repair like there's this tremendous learning opportunity so I. I really try to help people see that to embrace conflict um, is the kind of mindset and to not run. Yeah. And you have a beautiful process. I think it's called the four disconnectors. Yeah. Is that right? And that, that kind of contributes into understanding what's going to cause you to withdraw or become triggered, right? Like, could you speak to those a little bit of how yeah, those contribute to how we're actually going to show up? Yeah, totally. So, um, there's the four disconnectors. Like we're, when my nervous system gets a little hijacked by you, let's say we're in a conflict, it's going to move generally speaking in my experience in one of four directions, up, down, side to side, and up, up is posture, down is collapse. To let's say we could say to the right is um, seek and to the left is avoid. That doesn't really matter. The direction is one more time. I think that's really valuable. Interesting. Just archetypally. Yeah. So posturing, like a porcupine, you know, our yeah. quills come out and we get big collapsing like a hermit crab. We kind of get small and go inward or we seek and pursue and want to talk about, you know, I want to resolve this and we pursue the other person or avoid as we, we sort of tend to run away, withdraw, yeah. retreat. Yeah. And these are again, loosely off the nervous system to fight flies, fight, flight, freeze, faint response. Um, I just noticed that that's that kind of language those four disconnectors made sense to me. And then it's like, okay, we acknowledge this is how we, we disconnect in these ways. Cause we're scared. Basically there's a threat. Yeah. And, and then the work is like, how do we get reconnected back to ourselves and back to each other? And then on top of that, can you speak to the relationship, uh, blueprint a little bit and like how we see connection as well? Yeah. So all of us come into the world with a certain caregiver or parents and a family system that, you know, healthy, unhealthy doesn't matter. It's just what, what we got. And that lays down, the template gets laid down as a blueprint that I call a relational blueprint for how we're going to do relationships later in life. So if I grew up in a aggressive family where there was a lot of shouting, um, I'm either going to be a shouter myself, or I'm going to do the opposite of shouting in a, as an adult, um, uh, because it was so negative. Um, 
if I grew up in a family where uh, everybody went to their room, nobody saw relationships as resourcing, and I went outside or I went to books, and I was kind of on my own, which is a lot of us, um, uh, we tend to be more, we don't see relationships in our adult life as resourcing and helpful. And when we see, and we got rewarded for our independence and how strong we were and how we didn't need anything, that person ends up in an adult relationship and their blueprint basically says, okay, I like partnership and I like sex and I want to be with you. But when the going gets tough, I'm just going to retreat to my room because that goes better. I, I don't see you as helpful. I don't see anyone as helpful and I don't really need anything. I'm fine on my own. And as you can imagine, that creates a big problem in an intimate partnership over time. Yeah. Very cool. And then, I mean, one of the things you talked about as well was uh, contextually talking about culture. And I'm curious, a question that I get, and I imagine that you might as well, is how viable are these systems when the person with whom we are engaged in conflict isn't operating with the same protocol or framework? How important is it to share uh, a framework for how we're going to conduct ourselves when we're in the middle of one of these heightened uh, conversations or conflict? Yeah, it's essential. Like it's sort of like we're playing by the same rules or governed by the same agreements. Uh, it's very hard to repair, for example, with someone you get into conflict with who has no interest in learning how to repair. Uh, they just knee-jerk apologize, or they just uh, blame you. It's like you're overreacting. You're too sensitive. Um, all of that is a recipe for an insecure weak relationship, um, that's got a really unstable foundation. So people have to realize, and not everybody wants to realize if you want a strong, secure, solid foundation, it's, we want to act like a team. And that is we operate by principles that are kind of proven, um, by science as well as other people who are in successful relationships, their experience of like, what does it look like and it's like being a good team. You don't, you're not a good team when you're sitting on the bench blaming everybody else and not taking any responsibility. That's not a great team member, right? It's sort of common sense, but as you know, you'd be surprised at how many people don't want to play. So how do you take that first step for someone who's looking at doing this either in a room? And another question would be how different are the protocols for a workplace versus a romantic partnership in terms of like the framework that we're going to use to navigate conflict? Yeah. Well, power dynamics is everything. So in a partnership, hopefully, ideally, the power is shared and it's equal. In a work context, often it's not shared. There's a boss, a manager that's above us. There's people we're managing below us in a hierarchy. If we're in a work context, we have to really consider that hierarchy and the power dynamics. Um, If it's a equal, uh, we're both being managed by someone else and we're the ones in conflict, then that's a little different. So it's very important to understand um, if there's a power differential in parent-child relationships or another example where it's always the parent's job to repair the conflict. It's never the child's job to repair with the adult uh, up to a certain age, of course. Um, that's just asking children to work too hard and be adults and be you know farther along than they are. Uh, similarly, a leader, you know, at work, it's like you go first, you know, you set the rules here and everybody hopefully is bought into the conflict repair stuff. And then you live it, you model it day in and day out and you make yourself available if there's a big snag or you have ways in which 
Um, if you're a super big company, for example, you obviously have to buffer yourself and you have other people that can handle certain things for you. But in an intimate partnership, power dynamics should be equal and shared. And then it's like we were governed by the same, like you do this for me, I do this for you. Why would I do something uh, for me that's not good for you? Right? That's not fair. Yeah. And so once you get to that layer of a shared framework, something that both parties are willing and excited to be held accountable to, do you have any tips or advice about how to hold someone accountable for not honoring your shared agreements as it's related to communication? So if we're using nonviolent communication, if we're sharing from the eye and a partner's not available for that in the moment, how can we hold people accountable in a way that it's, it's going to be received most effectively? Well, again, they have to be bought into the original context for our relationship, which was, hey, we're in a growth development oriented relationship. We agree to repair every time we have a conflict. Uh, it's okay to run away for a little while, but you always have to return and come back. So let's say someone keeps breaking the agreements. Um, we have to have, a, again, an honest conversation about, hey, I don't know if this is going to work if you keep not agreeing, you agree, and then you go off and you do something else. And then you're upset with me because I'm trying to hold the agreements. Um, I don't think this is a great, you know, idea for us. And, you know, without making threats, we want to just have like, are you interested? Like, do you want to fix this? Do you want to clean this up with me? Or are you basically saying it's all me and it's up to me somehow to do this by myself? Um, even though there's two people that got into a snag here. You know, it's it's just being adults and being willing to have hard, honest conversations um, in a non-threatening way that say, "Hey, this doesn't feel good when you do it this way, or you don't agree to come back." And I think people, in my experience, hang on a little too long to try to. They basically try to cajole and change and fix their partner and and do all the things to get their needs met. And I don't recommend that because the other person typically feels judged and criticized, and it leads to even more resentment and tension. You, you had a funny video. You do these really beautiful, eloquent uh, clips on Instagram for anyone who doesn't follow them. I think you're on TikTok. I'm fortunately not on there as of yet. But uh, you, you did one that was so short and uh, someone was doing a Q&A and they said, uh, how do you get your partner to do the work if they don't want to? And you just look at the camera and you're like, you don't. And then you stop the video. <laughs> And I appreciate it. I'm just like, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And they don't want to do it. It's, there's yeah. no point in starting there. We, we can invite, we can inspire, we can try for a month or a couple of weeks, but you know, you, you're seeing the writings on the wall by their daily actions and how they treat you every day and how they treat themselves. And it's amazing. I mean, a lot of people will settle for these really one-sided relationships and, you know, when you get to know them, you understand, oh, right, you grew up in a family like this, so you think this is normal and this is okay and you don't know any different. So, you know, it's it's um, hard that people can't see another way. Um, and I'm, I'm here to take a stand and say you can have a mutual relationship where the, the give and take is shared and equal and power is equal and it can feel really good to both of you. You can have that, but you got to be willing to close the door on what you currently are doing. Yeah. And one of the things that you started with in terms of like your process for how we actually have uh, conscious conflict is you talked about ownership. And I think that, I mean, me personally and a lot of people that I work with, that's something that's most challenging. And so I'd, I'd love to dig in there a little bit more. And 
Like, what is it that you find makes it helpful for people to get to that place of owning their part? Again, like you talked about sometimes shame, they're even unaware of the beliefs that other people aren't going to be able to own their part or whatever they are. But I, I think it's so crucial. And I'd love for you to just anchor into that and like why that's where we start and how people can get there. And again, contextualize that about how that important it is to navigate conflict. Yeah. I mean, we get the problem with the human animal is we get really fixated on the other person, the threatening person, and we forget about ourselves. And so we're like, you did this to me and it's always you and you, 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 you. And it's, we're very good at kind of picking apart someone and what they did wrong or how they hurt us. We're not as good at the self-reflection part. So I think we have to just acknowledge that here. Um, and that can be overcome by continually practicing uh, and trying on the idea that there's two parts. Um, Gay Hendricks says 100% and 100% responsibility with both people, yeah. 50-50, but 100-100. And, and it can be an interesting experiment to look. And even if you think someone, like an affair is a classic one where people are like, hey, I didn't do anything. This person cheated on me. And I'm always, I always love to challenge those people because I'm like, no, um, you did something. Uh, to co-create this dynamic. And it's going to be really uncomfortable to look at that because you want to just be a victim and point the finger at someone else. And I want you to consider that you did some things over many years that had this person turn their attention elsewhere. Whether it was you were kind of edgy, you were working too much, you were um, in blame a lot. You were kind of bringing that victim energy, like whatever, like, can you look in the mirror and say, I wonder how I contributed to this mess and how it fell apart. So that's an extreme example, but in the day to day, I think it's a little easier. Like I've learned over time that there's just things I do that don't work for my, or, or not don't work. It's more like, there's just things I do in me just being myself that, upset that are like a little tripwire to my wife's nervous system. And I know that now. And so I can say, oh, I did that thing again, right? Where I raised my voice. I didn't um, clean up after myself. I, whatever the thing was that I do neurotically can be upsetting to her. So I can just say, I did that thing, didn't I? Yeah, I did. It was like pointless to defend myself. And then I'd say to the defenders out there, because we, we do some of us like to defend, um, you got to realize that it's, you're actually making it worse and you're going to make it take longer. The more you defend yourself, the more you want to make them wrong. I, I just find personal responsibility can really flatten things pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd love to dig in even deeper here. So a mutual friend of ours, John O'Connor, I, I remember I sat at a, a meal with him one time and he talked about this specifically and he offered the frame of if your partner was offering an assessment of like how you're operating or a pattern. And he said, can you just own that maybe like 2% of it is true, right? Like not that it's not a hundred percent true about who you are, but can you own that like 2% of it is true? Yeah. And that if 2% of it is true, then like there's a piece of it that's real. And that if you could just own that, it's going to help your partner to be heard. And like, there's nothing that's a threat there other than just acknowledging that some piece of it is true. And so I always love that. Like it's like 2% of what they're saying true. And yeah. I'm curious, like how you, how do you think about objectivity when it comes to helping people to take ownership? And like what I'll, I'll say more here just so we're, we're on the same page, but I'm a, a big proponent of nonviolent communication. 
And for me, I think that uh, some of the places where it tends to break down, especially like uh, you have one partner who really does want to be heard, feels very limited by the objectivity of like, my partner did this thing and you said these exact words because in the moment they may be charged up and, and they want to share their judgments and their perceptions. So I'm curious in your framework and how you navigate conflict, how do you, how do you think of sharing judgments or are you like a hard liner, like objectivity is the pathway to connection? Yeah, I'll say a couple things there. Uh, I think objectivity is definitely helpful. The more we can develop that part of ourselves that can remain neutral, remain objective. Like I have my subjective experience, you have yours. If we take the view that everybody's subjective experience is hundred percent valid, which has nothing to do with right and wrong, I think that starts to allow us to be different and to see it differently. You see the car crash differently than I saw the car crash. And that's okay. No one's right and no one's wrong, but everybody's perspective is valid here and welcome here. If we can operate under that kind of view and framework, I think um, it allows for um, two different you know, two people who see it really differently. And so that's number one. And then number two is, uh, it can be, um, useful at times to share judgments with a partner, a close friend, if there's context for it, if there's a container for it, if there's some emotional safety, if there's some emotional literacy, if there's the ability to repair, cause it could get messy. So you're going to want to clean it up. Um, so it's okay to, I think at times, again, given if you have some chops here and you have some skills, you can say things like, look, I judge your lateness. It's really freaking hard for me. Um, but anytime, you know, most of us into personal growth understand that our judgments often say more about us than the other person. So we can also, it's an opportunity to reflect and go, huh, what is it about lateness that's so activating for me? Um, could I try on that they're just manifesting a disowned part of myself that I've repressed and rejected? Could I step into that for a minute and see how much I really dis have disdain for the part of me that's disorganized and late sometimes and doesn't do things perfectly. And I'm just now projecting that onto them. Like, so judgments can allow us to go deeper inside of our own self-understanding if worked with skillfully. And how would you think about, how do you think about kind of our relationship to our identity as it's related to like being willing to accept others' judgment? Do you track what I'm saying there of like the willingness? No, a different way? Yeah. So um, I, I just think again, you know, personal experience here, it can be quite challenging to hear a judgment because if someone says something or has a an idea of kind of who I am, I, you know what, I'm, I'm not framing it in a way that I think is going to be really cogent right now. I'm kind of in my own space there. So I'll, I'll bring it back, which is just, you know, as we're looking at getting to zero, like if, from what we've been talking about here, how would you contextualize that within the frame of getting to zero? Because getting to zero in your words is fundamentally what? Is getting back to a good place. Just getting back to a good place. Yeah. We want to be connected to ourselves and the other person that to me is zero, zero meaning zero trigger activation on a zero to 10 scale. That's the ideal is we're aiming for some kind of baseline where our nervous system is let down and we feel safe uh, to be ourselves and we feel welcome. 
And you had mentioned earlier the scenario that a partner has cheated and you were inviting in the frame that, you know, this person also has something to own in that. And so I'm curious when you think about getting to zero and that idea of taking responsibility, like, can you talk a little bit more about your approach there of getting to zero and the importance of taking responsibility of transcending kind of the victim mindset? Yeah, for sure. Uh, for example, I'm working with this couple recently and, um, the man had an emotional affair, the woman's, you know, they've been together many, many years. And the woman was like, how could you do this? And there we're, we're working through like what the deal is here. And so of course, after validating the hell out of her experience and how upsetting this is now I can turn my attention to, all right, well, let's look at what you were doing or not doing for many years that helped set this whole thing up. And it's cool. She's starting to see ways in which, and she's willing, she's, she's a, a pretty willing student, uh, client who's like, okay, I'm willing to look in the mirror here. Um, you don't always get that of course. Uh, and she's seeing some things about how her, she sort of stayed guarded in her heart over time instead of bringing her hurt behind the guardedness to her husband. She just sort of kind of closed off slowly and then got, was also very critical of him and what he would do or not do in terms of how he did things around the house. And she's not now starting to see that that way of being had a long-term impact over time on her husband that had him feel judged and criticized and sort of start to turn away from her because he wasn't getting his emotional needs or connection met there. Um, so, you know, when we, when we look closely at like an affair and we really get honest and examine it, you start to see that it took years to get here, but it, there was a bunch of little cuts along the way that led to kind of the injury. Um, yeah, so it's, it does require though a willingness to, to see things that way. And I just always assume, you know, when I'm in a conflict with someone, I'm like, God, what did I do? You know, it's just as a practice, what did I do or not do? Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned in that story that I think is really crucial, I'd love to hear more about your frame here, is just about how she brought some of her feelings forward into the dynamic. And I'm just curious if you were to frame the importance of some of this emotional intelligence and being able to lead with emotion, how does that parlay into effective conflict resolution? Well, emotions to me are like lubrication for connection. And if I hurt you, um, you know, there's emotions involved in shutting you down or whatever I did. And the way back to a good place is to actually be able to tolerate and feel and be with whatever emotional stuff you weren't bringing to me, like your pain or your hurt or your fear. Like, I want to be able to hold that with you because you're going to be like, okay, Jason can handle my feelings here. I feel safer because he can handle them. He's not trying to fix it. He's not pushing me away. He's not rolling his eyes at me. He's not making me wrong. I'm actually a feeling being and I can feel and, you know, like we start to thaw out a little bit. And I, I think it's pretty critical in the repair process to be able to feel our feelings and be seen in those by the person that hurt us. And it's really vulnerable. It's kind of sometimes the last thing we want to do is let our guard down with the other person because uh, we fear they're going to hurt us again, or we have memories and we project onto them. It doesn't matter. It's just, we fear we're on lockdown. So, 
I, I think good relationships, um, both business partnerships, couples, um, friendships, really are are two people who are willing to move, feel a lot of things, including discomfort, see each other in that, validate each other's experience and feelings, and continue to you know this 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 beautiful back and forth of being a person, being human, and being kind of neurotic and being easily heard and being sensitive. Can we just welcome all of that and have the tools to move back and forth between it and within it? I, I just think those are really dynamic relationships. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question, but no, it, it definitely does. And I mean, while we're still, I want to round out because I, I want to spend some time also talking about romantic relationships and some of uh, some of the other techniques and tools I know of yours that I think are really valuable, but I'm curious, like, we're just looking for someone who is, again, on this path, whether it's in the romantic partnership with family at work, who wants to deepen and improve their relationship to conflict. Like, what are some of the other essential skills that you would look at that would be vital on that journey? Yeah. So, I mean, to be, you got to become a good communicator. So I think we've covered some of that, just really good speaking and listening skills. Something we can do when we're speaking is we can consider the other person, consider the impact of our way of being on other people. That's kind of empathy, right? That just being, hey, I'm just being myself because uh, that that gets thrown around. But being yourself has an impact. <laughs> if I'm just letting it rip and running my mouth, hey, I'm just being myself and I'm mowing down people along the way or I'm really triggering people, it's very important that I consider that there's impact over there, no matter how I'm being. Um, I could be being super quiet and peaceful and steady. That's going to impact and irritate someone potentially. So there's just impact, right? We're walking around impacting people all day long um, without getting too wrapped up in uh, being careful about that. It's just being, just acknowledging it is huge. Um, speaking through other people's values is also important. Um, I, we often in relationships lead with me, myself, and I. Hmm. It can be really cool to lead with Hey, I know, um, you know, earning more money and wealth building and, uh, your mission is important to you, Andrew. And given that, would you be willing to, given how busy you are and how hard you work, would you be willing to spend time with me, um, talking about our relationship? Because I think it's going to help you make more money and be more effective at work. Like I, I frame it in a way that's going to help you, right? I'm kind of selling that it's totally. going to be a benefit to you rather than, I need to talk and I'm have so many problems with you and poor me and wow, wow, wow. It's just like people get, you know, kind of turned off by that. Jonathan Haidt talks about that really beautifully about Republicans and Democrats of like, if you look at what are their most consequential values and they're pretty, they're pretty consistent across Democrats and Republicans. And he says, it's like, if you're going to have a conversation with someone you disagree with here, don't talk about the content of the issue Talk about the underlying value that's driving them to take that position on the issue, which exactly. I thought was really, and again, like I've used that with my dad on many occasions. <laughs> totally, right? Yeah, yeah. totally. Uh, Chris Voss, I think, calls it tactical empathy. It's like leading with the other person's like worldview and seeing, hey, I see you in your worldview and, and it's okay with me. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's big. And then I would also say just um, there's there's something that, we haven't talked about that maybe we're going to bring up, but it's important to me, which is the inner conflict that a lot of people are walking around with, which is in short, 
we grew up as little children in a family system that doesn't welcome all of us, most mm. of us, right? So we we compromise and we start to reject and sequester parts of ourselves that don't get approval and love and belonging in the system. And that's at school as well. So I was sensitive, emotional, empathic kid, stern father, um, boy on the playground. I got the message very quickly, like this part of me is not welcome. I shove it down in exchange for um, attributes and qualities that get more belonging and approval and less hurt and pain, like performing, being funny, doing well in sports, yada, 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 right? So that tension though, between the strategies I learned and my true authentic self is a conflict. And I just call it the inner conflict that a lot of us are walking around with. And then many decades goes by and we're adults still stuck in a strategy and it's become our identity. Meanwhile, our true self is tucked way behind, buried, and we're not fulfilled. We're kind of just feeling off and feeling depressed and feeling kind of this low-grade anxiety about life. And we're just like, we try everything. We try the relationship. We try the moving. We try making more money. And it's just none of it works because there's this deeper layer of uh, lack of fulfillment because we're not really being honest with ourselves. And the good thing about what I love partnership so much is and marriage and family and kids is it starts to unearth that inner conflict because it's really hard to hide in a marriage. So, so more true self stuff starts to come out and it can get really messy, but that's why I see relationship as a path to coming home to ourselves because it, you have to, you have to um, expose the inner conflict to, to actually resolve it. And relationships have this beautiful way of um, activating our inner conflict exposing it, getting it out on the table so that we can see it clearly. And then we have this amazing, if we have a great partnership, we can work on resolving that together as a team. Yeah. This is a lot of what I was really interested in where I wanted to take it was in like the intrapersonal leading to the interpersonal. And so, I mean, I love that you synthesize it as the, the inner conflict. And when you think about people even becoming aware of that, of perhaps like the, the coping mechanisms, the strategies that they have deployed to achieve success, connection, you name it, like for someone who's curious about who they really are, uh, what is the performance versus what is this authentic self beneath, how does someone start to excavate and figure that out? Who's starting? Yeah. Well, uh, there's a number of ways. Um, first is look at your life right now and just ask yourself an honest question. It's to me, it's the most ruthless question, which is, am I fulfilled? And not am I fulfilled um, kind of over the arc of my life, but am I feel f fulfilled today? And you can ask two sub-questions. Do I like who I am and how I am today? And if you ask the question, those two questions every day for like a month, do I like who I am and how I am? Like how I'm showing up to my life, how I'm being, et cetera. And you can't get to a yes, you're not fulfilled. Um, and that's good news to admit you're not fulfilled. And I don't like happiness because happiness is a one-sided emotion. So I use fulfillment because it includes happy and sad. You can be happy and sad and still be fulfilled. Um, so if you're not fulfilled, then it's like, all right, I, I'm admitting what's true inside of me, which is mm, something is off. And the great news about that is now you have something to work with. And then you can go do psychedelics or you can go work with someone like Andrew or you can go um, take a course or you can, um, 
do a rite of passage or a vision quest or something to try to get to the bottom of that off feeling. And I would assert that what you're going to find often is this inner split um, between your true nature, who you really are deep down inside, and this kind of strategy that you've learned to lead with, like a mask, to get belonging, approval, acceptance, status, all the things. And um, I, I said psychedelics because that, you know, my first mushroom, exp second mushroom experience, technically. Um, I was in the Utah desert and I actually saw this conflict like laid bare and I was freaked the fuck out because I was like a hundred yards away from myself and I was like, who's that? And it was me. And I was like, well, if that's me over there, then who am I mm -hmm. over here? And it was incredibly confronting, right? I was just like, and it ended up being a bad trip, even though it was a good trip because I just didn't have guidance. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have set and setting. I didn't have all the things you need to have a good psychedelic experience, but I got the message. And I was like, that, that became a fissure in my early twenties that I couldn't deny. And I, I didn't deal with it until about 10 years later, but I, uh, it was there, right? There was a crack in the matrix of my being. And I kept coming back to that throughout my twenties. Like what's going on here? Like, what, <laughs> what is this? Uh, well, what was, you said you, you dealt with it 10 years later. Like when you think of this word fulfillment, which to, to make it even more clear for listeners, like what, what is fulfillment to you? It's this notion of liking myself and how I'm doing my life. And there's a sense of kind of a connection to my heart or with the satisfaction that like, you know what, I, my life is up and down. It's challenging. It's amazing. It's hard one day. I feel kind of lame one day, but overall, I really, uh, appreciate who I am, what I've created. Um, when I look in the mirror, there's a good person looking back at me and I'm doing good things that are fulfilling to me. I'm making an impact in other people's lives. So rather than have kind of, that's just how I would describe it rather than like, yeah, a totally fine thing. Beautiful, man. So it's, it comes down to fulfillment. And I guess I just asked you that question. What is fulfilling you most today? Hmm. A few things. Um, my family, um, family is a very high value for me, wife and kids. And the time we have together and just watching children grow is like just this insanely beautiful experience to me. It's very fulfilling. Um, and um, finding my way with, um, it, it's sort of like I'm, I'm, I've been in this kind of fuzzy, nebulous next chapter of my life for the last year or so. And some days it's scary and some days it's depressing and some days it's anxiety provoking and some days it's great. Um, but what's fulfilling about it is that I have help and support and I have, I can lean on people and guides, friends, practitioners, my wife, and and when I kind of rest into that, I'm, I remember that I'm on this hero's journey called my life. And there's just something extraordinarily cool about that, that isn't, isn't a problem. It's like not fundamentally a problem. There's no, when I look around, I'm like, there's no real big problem here. 
other than I don't have a hundred percent clarity on where I want to drive my, um, heart into next. And that's, um, I don't know. There's something beautiful about the process and that I have to zoom out to like, remember that. Right. <laughs> and I'm curious, you know, for, for people who are, I think everyone at a, at a surface level understands the value of relationships. You beautifully spoke to the power of relationships and their ability to reveal, you know, the authentic self like underneath. And I would totally agree with that. But again, if you were to contextualize like how you would hope people relate to relationships and the value of them in their lives, like what, how would you do that as someone who spent so much time thinking about it, you know, for someone to develop a more relational lens to their lives, their work, what would you offer up? I would start with a question for everybody listening. And I would say, have you settled for the, have you settled for belonging at the expense of feeling known? Cause that's what people do. We all get, Oh yeah, I have friends. I've got whatever family, I, I feel less alone. That's cool. But if people are honest, um, a lot of people don't feel known and in their circle, in their network, right? They feel like nobody gets me kind of on my own here. If shit really hit the fan, like would anyone actually show up for me? You know, yeah, they'll show up for me and like move or, Hey, I'll come help you move or I'll, Oh, you've got COVID. Okay, cool. I'll come over and bring you some food. But that's very different than feeling like my interior feels deeply seen and accepted. That's very different. And so it's not enough to just be connected to people and belong to a group. It's, you know, I did that. I played that game in, in high school, in college, and in my 20s. And I was unfulfilled because I wouldn't let anybody in. I was keeping everybody out. Right. And I was kind of off inside. And, and, um, it wasn't until I started letting people truly in, like my wife being the real and my therapist being the first couple of people that I was like, Oh shit, this is scary. And it felt so good at the same time, like go away, but wait, don't leave me. <laughs> it's totally confronting. Beautiful. Yeah, so. and, and what was the role of what's your wife's name? Ellen. Ellen. And what would you say is, let's bring it back to conflict, but what is the, one of the most important things she's taught you about how to approach conflict consciously, specifically? Boy, that I'm forever a student. Um, you know, I, I wrote a freaking book on how to work through conflict and it's still the hardest thing in my own marriage, right? We teach what we most need to learn. So there's times when, like she's taught me how to empathize. I, I think I've historically um, not a great empathizer, uh, have being a formally shut down dude. And then I, I think I learned cognitive empathy, which goes a long way. That's cool. Uh, but she wants more than cognitive empathy. <laughs> can you can you break that down? I think that'd be really helpful for listeners of like, what is the distinction between cognitive empathy and what's beyond that? Yeah. So their cognitive empathy is like, Hey, yeah. Oh man, that sucks. You're having a hard day, Andrew. Um, that's sort of, it's like, I get that empathizing with you or man, I can relate. I had a hard day yesterday or something. There's a way in which we can just say the words and it can help. The other person can feel like a little less alone and like, Oh, thanks. You kind of understand me. 
But then there's a, another layer past that, which is like feeling felt. Dan Siegel talks about this in his work and where how children need to feel felt by big people to really truly trust their experience and to have a secure bond with the parents. And there's something that I continue to learn about my wife needs to feel felt like I feel her. It's not like if she's in pain, I need to go into this soup of pain and feel it. It's not quite that, but there's a mammalian thing I can do with my body where I can really, I can close my eyes or I can take a breath and I can go, Oh, okay. You're feeling totally alone. And it helps if I can access the parts of me that have felt alone in life. And then I can bring that like relatability, like, oh yeah, that sucks. And I can bring that to feeling her aloneness. And that goes a lot farther for me. I'm not mm -hmm. great at it. I'm still learning. So, you know, it's sort of like my kids and my partner continue to teach me things that help us be a stronger team and help me be a better person. Yeah. It feels like there's not as much of a, a recipe for that one, but just like the practice of showing up and actually trying to make someone feel felt. Yeah. Yeah. What about, so we talked about Ellen, what's a surprising lesson about conflict resolution that you've taken from your kids? Um, probably a couple there. Uh, kids are very forgiving. Um, in a way that adults aren't because they don't have the negative memory that's compounded over decades. And if you clean it up with kids, they have literally like, there's no place for it to go. Like they'll bounce back super fast. So there's been times where I've raised my voice pretty strongly at my kids over the years, particularly my son. And if I do a good repair within a few minutes and I get down on my knees and I let him know, and this is when he was younger, um, and man, he is like, I mean, within seconds, he's the switch is back to play. Let's just play. Cause it's like done. He's not hanging on to anything. Like, cool. Let's move on. That was great. Um, and then my daughter similarly, but she continues to teach me. She's like, kind of like my wife, very sensitive. And if I, if I come in with like if she has a complete, you know, a challenge at school. Right. And I come in with dad, like fix it guy. And I'm like, well, you know what you should do say to that kid, <laughs> I'm overriding her feelings. Right. And so it's way better for me to lay next to her, hold her and say, Oh, that sucks. That was so hard. And I hear you. What else do you want to tell me about that? It sounds really scary and seems like you feel kind of alone. And then the tears just flow. Right. But similarly, when she gets it all out, all the feelings out, she's like, okay, I want to go do some art or play or can we, you know, she's like done. So there's, there's just such power that my kids have taught me into in being present and repairing quickly and also play, right? Kids are, kids are not jammed up like I am. They're, they're, uh, I have all my habits and judgments and contractions and you know, like in high school, I couldn't get on the dance floor unless I had alcohol in me, right? And kids, they're just so free to like play and be silly and wear the, like my son used to wear this huge wizard cap and a cape. Like we go to Whole Foods or whatever, he'd have his <laughs> gear on, right? You should borrow it for Halloween. I know. And it's <laughs> so, it's just like, man, you're free. 
And so they, they teach me how to be less tight and more free. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Well, you know, I oftentimes think about this podcast as a way to learn very practical skills and how to implement them. And, um, one of the most important aspects of change is first steps. And so I'm curious, uh, for people who've been listening to this today, who either want to go deeper with you or want to implement a framework for conscious communication and conflict resolution at home, at work, what would you say are some of the first steps that you would prescribe to start stepping down this path? Yeah, I would say if something's resonating here, um, again, it's, it's honesty with self first is what, what is it that you need to tell yourself right now? Um, about this episode that you're listening to, like what, what is true that like you could work on, um, whether it's repair or listening or whatever the skill is. And if there is something just rather than get overwhelmed to God, I'm such an idiot. There's so many things to do. It's like, just pick one thing and say, um, I really resonated with the listening thing and I want to commit to becoming a better listener in my life. Cause I think that would help me. I think it would help my family. I think it would help my partner. I think it would help my work. I think it would help the world if I could not do my habit of listening, but instead if I applied myself and kind of uh, really upgraded my listening chops, man, that would be really cool. So that, that could be like the one thing, you know? So picking one thing I think is, is a good idea, whatever the thing is. Um, and if you have, if you remember that, you know, however old you are, you, you're a learner, you've gotten good at something in your life, whether it's dance or music or accounting or something. And that took time, right. To take this long view of uh, where you live in an instant gratification culture and quick fixes and hacks and things. Um, relationships aren't like that. The nervous system takes time to, um, change and transform and your mind. So if you can take this long view that like, oh, I've done this before. I've learned hard things before. Um, I'm willing to be uncomfortable learning those things. So I'm going to take this long view of, I want to become a better, just, I want my relationships to be better. So I'm going to, I'm going to just step on this path and, uh, say yes to that. And I'm going to put one foot in front of the other. And here's my first step. Beautiful brother. I, I doubt there are many people who get to the end of their life and say, I wish I had spent less time investing in my relationships. So amen to that. Yeah. Exactly. Well, dude, we are right at an hour. I want to honor your time. So thank you so much for being here. We're going to have the show notes, but if you were to tell people where to find you online on the socials, where should they check you out? Yeah, thanks. Uh, relationshipschool.com uh, at Jason Gaddis on Instagram and most of the socials. And that's Jason with a Y, J-A-Y-S-O-N. Um, those are probably the two. And where, are you most, where are you most active? I, I know you on Instagram, but I know you're on others. Yeah, probably right now, LinkedIn and Instagram um, is probably where I'm most active. Yeah. Perfect. And then Perfect. the book is on Amazon or Barnes or your local bookstore. And highly recommend it. So thanks so much for taking the time, Jason. It's been a pleasure thanks. chatting. Yeah, great hanging out. All right. Thanks for listening.